0: Visit
1: BankofAmerica.com/bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America. Na. Copyright 2024.
2: Hello, you're listening to Babbage, the show that gives you your weekly dose of stories from the world of science and technology. I'm Jason Palmer, one of the editors of Espresso, The Economist's daily briefing app. If you haven't downloaded it yet, why not give it a try? This week, we find out the true meaning of code, according to the economist Philip Aurswold.
0: Actually, the one that comes closest to the usage I intend in this book is genetic code, DNA.
2: Also on the show, the state of the Arctic.
1: Over the past three decades, the area of sea ice has fallen by more than half, and uh, its volume has plummeted by three quarters.
2: And how to make water-repellent materials regenerate themselves. There are some animals that are not too different from your waterproof jacket. First, though, time to take a quick temperature check on the Arctic. Efforts to limit global warming may help prevent the worst-case scenario for our planet, but unfortunately they will not stop the Arctic as we know it from melting. A meeting of the Arctic Council is being held this week, and Rex Tillerson, America's Secretary of State, will be attending. Miranda Johnson, our environment correspondent, is here to tell us more about that. Hiya, Miranda.
1: Hey, Jason.
2: So America is currently the, the chair of the Arctic Council and is, is handing over to Finland. It's kind of easy to see this as a, a metaphor for their relinquishing concern for the environment. But I mean, most of all, it's been really hard to figure out what it is the administration's stance is on climate change policy. W- you know, What do you think the feeling is going to be like at the council amidst all this doubt?
1: So Chile, obviously. <laughs> the Arctic Council is a scientific policy club for the eight countries with territory in the Arctic, as well as indigenous groups and observers, including China, India, and indeed the UK. No one is quite sure what America is doing on climate policy at the moment. There are talks in Bonn right now going on related to the Paris Agreement on Climate Change, which aims to limit global warming to well below two Celsius above pre industrial temperatures. America has sent a tiny delegation there. They're not talking a lot in discussions. And now the Arctic Council meeting is also happening. And no one's quite sure what the input is going to be because this hasn't really been fleshed out yet by the new team. Indeed, meetings in the White House on whether or not America should stay in the Paris Agreement, keep getting delayed. Rex Tillerson is rumoured to be pushing in favour of remaining in the Paris Agreement, keep a seat at the table. Steve Bannon, a presidential advisor, wants to pull out of it. He thinks it's a, a bad deal for America. It will be interesting to consider, I think, what the natural gas interests in America want, because obviously companies such as Exxon, big oil firms speaking up in of the Paris Agreement. It's probably a powerful element in its favour. But ultimately, I think it will come down to Mr. Trump and what he wants to do.
2: Well, it seems, though, kind of, in a sense, it doesn't matter what the the policy changes are to one of the elements here, which is what's going to happen in the Arctic. We have what I guess we should call a stock problem, not a flow problem. I mean, what, what effects is the Arctic already seeing?
1: The climate responds to an accumulation of carbon emissions in the atmosphere, stuff that has already been released. So because of that, we know that a huge amount of warming is already locked in, as it were. Even if the Paris Agreement is implemented in full, i.e. America did everything it promised it would, the Arctic will warm by between 5 degrees Celsius and 9 degrees Celsius above the 1986 to 2005 average over the Arctic Ocean in winter. We know that that's coming. The thaw is happening far faster, though, than we once expected.
2: So the, the sea ice coverage is is already down by half, is that right?
1: Over the past three decades, the area of sea ice has fallen in the Arctic by more than half, and uh, its volume has plummeted by three quarters. And another problem we're seeing is that because it's melting so much, we're getting a lot of the older, tougher, more rigid Ice with a bumpier surface is melting, it's being replaced by new ice, which has got this much flatter, sort of glossier surface, which means that it actually reflects less heat back into the atmosphere. Because the reason that the cold, white regions of the world help reflect heat is because of the reflectivity of ice and its its whiteness.
2: Well, there are other uh, sort of these these albedo effects as well. Also, the, the water itself and the, the permafrost is releasing gases as things are melting. I mean, this is kind of a, uh, a nasty feedback loop altogether.
1: Absolutely. And there are all sorts of feedback loops going on. And, and, and we see this around the world with climate change, feedback loops, both positive and negative. But certainly when you replace ice with dark water, that Ensures that the region kind of gets warmer and warmer and speeds up warming, which is why the Arctic is warming at twice the rate of the rest of the world on average. And um, as you say, when permafrost thaws, it also releases methane because permafrost is made up of dead organisms. Methane is a very powerful greenhouse gas, therefore. That leads to, it. yeah, more warming, more permafrost melts. You know how it goes.
2: And with that comes changing of uh, the range of various food species and, and what have you. It's a bad scenario. But there are people who think there are good elements to it, right? There's the, There's been this talk of, you know, new shipping lanes opening up and it becoming more feasible to do drilling and so on. How's all that coming together?
1: If we'd had this conversation in 2012, I think... Perhaps we would have been much more exciting, in particular, about the northern sea route, a way for ships to go through northern waters that could cut journey times by about 40%. Now, I think shipping companies are increasingly realising that even in the summer, the Arctic is a pretty dangerous, cold and, and stormy place. And actually, as the ocean up there warms, you get these bits of ice pack that are very dangerous, actually, for ships. And so... If shipping companies want to send their ships up there, they still have to especially reinforce boats. That costs a lot. They can't guarantee that they'll get goods from A to B on time. So the shipping ardour has cooled somewhat. There was a lot of excitement around offshore drilling. As oil prices have plummeted in recent years, that interest has also waned and we saw famously in 2015 Shell pulling out of the Chukchi Sea because they didn't find enough of the black stuff and it wasn't really worth it. They poured seven billion dollars in there and ultimately had to walk away.
2: So any arguments about there being an upside to this now kind of ring hollow?
1: It's a fool's errand to try and guess where oil prices will be and where, where they're going. But at the moment there are a lot of risks and as the science develops we better understand the risks associated with investment and development in this region. And there are some huge challenges that companies have to face.
2: Thank you very much, Miranda.
1: Thanks, Jason.
2: Next up, the words code, coding and coders now all regularly feature in everyday speech. But what exactly does code mean? For Philip Aurswald, it's the fundamental element behind the progression of human civilization. It's how cities came to be, how industries build up and how human experience evolves over time. Philip is an associate professor of public policy at George Mason University, an economist, an author, and co-founder of Innovations, a journal published by MIT Press, which presents entrepreneurial solutions to global problems. In his most recent book, The Code Economy, he set his sights on history, the 40,000-year history of code. Our senior editor, Ken Kukie, spoke to Philip recently to find out more.
3: Philip, welcome. Great to be here. You think of code not just in terms of computer programming, but something much more, What are you talking about when you say code?
0: The word code has multiple uses. You just alluded to the sort of default one. Now, uh, when we think about the digital economy, uh, coding, programming, there's legal codes, building codes, any sort of uh, an array of instructions. But actually, the one that comes closest to the usage I intend in this book is genetic code, DNA. DNA. So when we think about uh, the DNA of biological evolution, we know what that is. But what's the DNA of the evolution of human societies? So when
3: does code begin?
0: The specific reason I chose 40,000 years in the title of the book... Has to do with the production of obsidian axes at that time by Neolithic peoples, and that was really the first instance that we have where anthropologists have reproduced that process—the multi-stage, complex multi-stage process of producing uh, obsidian axes. So, so in some sense, that's our first documented code in the way we would think about modern code of something that's replicable, learned, and improved upon over time.
3: Now, one of the criticisms might be that you're defining code so broadly that sort of everything is going under the tent and that you're cherry picking what you want to talk about. How do you respond to that?
0: It is defined broadly. Another word which I'm really intending is a, a synonym for code is is technology. Technology is a, is, a, is a word that combines two roots. One is an art uh, trade or craft, and the other is an order to count. And so technology literally means an order to count of art trade or craft, which is a recipe. It's it's it is it's a set of instructions. So it is broad, but it actually, what the book sort of attempts to develop and going back really throughout the history of economics, there have been prototypes of, of an economics that's based on the evolution of algorithms and code. So it's not a subtopic, actually. It's a central topic to the study of economics, it's a central topic to the evolution of human societies. And it's about that mid-level definition of practice that's uh, faster changing than institutions and culture, but more slowly changing than individual decision-making and agency.
3: What is it about human beings that allows us to create code? Maybe a way of asking it is, are we hardwired to code?
0: I would say it's absolutely hardwired. I think that um, when we think about the, the differentiating feature between us and other primates, I mean, yes, it's a larger, more densely interconnected brain. But what did that allow us to do? Language and group activity. The creation of, of the village out of the tribe, a uh, sort of a stable association, was the precursor to the modern business firm. It, it, it's a group of people that share tasks and responsibilities towards a, a common aim. So I think it's absolutely hardwired, and I think the ability to generate code, to preserve code, uh, and to improve upon code is nothing less than the core differentiator of the human species.
3: So, I love that part of the book, and I was struggling to understand how things are evolving in the framework of your work. Because yes, we've all come together in cities, because we can reduce transaction costs and we can actually build upon the knowledge of what we know how to do, yet we would then also create the firm, Ronald Coase, in which we can see that we can reduce transaction costs and we can actually do things more efficiently. Yet yeah, what we're seeing today is that we have platforms that allow us to disaggregate some of these things. We can remote work, that portions of the firm are being blown apart and specializing into certain areas. How do these forces, at one point centrifugal and then centripetal, dovetail with the framework of your book?
0: The tension with code is that it both enhances our capabilities and reduces our freedom right we think about this with legal codes you know when you when you had the evolution of democracy coincident with the evolution of science on one hand both have been the cornerstone of human progress but at the same time they were both institutions in which we gave up our autonomy to a significant extent scientists don't decide what is true scientists operate within a procedural framework, a code of inquiry that governs what ends up being determined to be true or not. Democratic political leaders operate within a democratic political framework. To the extent that they abide by those structures and codes, they are legitimate democratic leaders. Uh, To the extent they don't, they cease to be. So when we operate within the framework of code, and it's certainly true within business firms, there are advantages of being associated with a business firm. You are paid a higher marginal, product wage, uh, marginal product determined wage, as a consequence of the overall efficiency of the firm. But you don't have complete autonomy. You have to operate within that framework. So this is always true, and it's always evolving. And the latest iterations of that are absolutely no different.
3: Philip Ourswold, thank you very much. Thank you, Ken. Great to be on the show. That was Philip
2: Ourswold talking to Ken Kukier. Finally, lotus leaves are, frankly, repellent of water, that is, and this property has been borrowed by scientists and co-opted for man-made materials. But so far, most of these have been quite susceptible to damage. Our science correspondent Matt Kaplan joins us on the line to tell us about a new development that may help them regenerate themselves. Hiya, Matt. Hey, how's it going, Jason? yeah, not so bad., um, first of all, tell me a little bit about how these how hydrophobic materials work in the first place.
4: So the idea is you get clusters of of tiny, tiny nodules that all stick up from a structure. I mean, in nature we see this on lotus leaves, which are legendary for shedding water very easily in beautiful silvery balls. Have you seen them? They're I have, yeah. So uh, lotus leaves have all these little waxy nodules clustered together and they stick out from the leaf such that a water molecule can't bind to the leaf at all. So instead it binds to itself and you get these perfect spheres of water that just roll right off. So it's possible to create materials that have similar very tightly clustered nodules that cause water to bind to itself rather than to the surface. Uh, The catch there though is that to create that network of very small nodules makes materials very fragile. And so once they're
2: once they're damaged, I guess they they lose their their magical properties.
4: Yeah. The super hydrophobicity as it is called is lost when you you rip up the structures because now water can gain purchase.
2: And so there is a solution scientists have once again turned to to nature to solve this problem but but not to lotus leaves.
4: Your waterproof jacket When it gets ripped, it's not going to heal itself. Lotus leaves, the cells can work out what got damaged and fix it, or the leaf can just simply be regrown. But uh, there are some animals that are not too different from your waterproof jacket, in, in that reptiles and many insects are unable to fix their surfaces. So when their skin gets damaged, rather than heal it, they just shed their skins, dump their external layer, and grow a new one. Uh, would it be possible to do something similar with these waterproof layers, I- as they get damaged, have them shed themselves and then just have a, a nice new shiny layer below?
2: Now, normally we, we hear from you about various experiments that have poked and prodded and otherwise bothered various animals, but this is more just borrowing an idea rather than troubling them directly.
4: No lizards were harmed in this experiment, at least not that <laughs> were reported. They took two layers of superhydrophobic material, not too different from the lotus leaf, and they stacked them on top of each other, and in between they put a glue that would hold them together, but which was permeable and would relatively quickly dissolve if exposed to water. You can see how this works. You have two superhydrophobic layers that are stacked on top of one another, and then in between you have a soluble layer of glue. If the top layer is intact, water will never reach that glue, and the water will continue to be shed by the upper layer. If the top layer becomes damaged, then water starts to leak through and hit that glue that's down below it. Over time, as more water reaches that glue, that glue will begin to dissolve, and the top layer, which is being held in place by that glue, will be shed. So the notion is you could have stacks of these things that would work not too differently from reptile scales.
2: And could be equally flexible and, uh, you know, applicable to that that damaged water-repellent jacket I've got?
4: Yeah. The problem that they've got right now is that if you create this thing and you put a big layer on top of another layer with the glue in between, if you get a scratch anywhere then the water's going to seep in, and the glue everywhere will begin to dissolve, and you'll shed the entire friggin' coat. So you have to kind of work in compartments, and in fact create something that looks not too different from reptile skin. But they haven't done that yet. That would be the next step in creating lots of little pockets, each one sealed with its own little sachet of glue holding it together, and when that little bit gets damaged, then that little bit of surface would get shed. Make sense?
2: Yeah, and I wouldn't want to get sort of caught out in the rain and find that suddenly my whole jacket had shed away.
4: (laughs) No, that's the idea.
2: Thanks for that, Matt. Hey, no worries, Jason. Good talking to you. Before we go, in a recent episode, we discussed the revelation that a certain type of moth larvae had been found munching through plastic and could potentially, therefore, in their fluttery way, save the world. One Babbage listener, though, wrote in intrigued, surprised that anyone was actually taken aback by this finding. Gary Payrow wrote, Common household moths, known as Indian meal moths, routinely eat through plastic bags in people's pantries. I'm not sure if they can extract nutrition from the plastic, but at least they're able to chew through it. I supposed that this was common knowledge to the scientific community and was surprised when I heard about this discovery. Thanks for that, Gary. That email is a reminder to all of you that if you see something interesting, surprising, or just weird out there in the world, find a scientist to tell, just in case they don't already know. That's all for this episode of Babbage. We hope you enjoyed it. If so, please take a moment to rate it through your favorite podcast app or on iTunes. And as always, if you have any thoughts on this week's show, you can email us at radio@economist.com. economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation... Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more.
0: What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.